0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is Max Thomas, your host. And before we jump into Ezra Nehemiah again, uh, just a quick reminder. Uh, I announced this in the last episode as well, but I've launched a Substack page where I'll be releasing uh, some writing, theological reflections, uh, just pieces of things of content that I'm working on, some short, some uh, longer and uh, there's a free option and a monthly subscription option. You can find the link to my substack in the description below, and also in the description below you'll find a link to the notes uh, for this very study of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, It's essentially a short commentary uh, that I'm giving away for free, and so you'll find both those things in the description below. And also, if you have any questions on Uh, something that was said or not said or would like further clarification, my email is always down there as well and would love to hear from you uh, about the study or about anything else. So with that, let's jump back into Ezra Nehemiah at a little bit of a quicker pace this episode than the last one, I promise. right we're back here with uh more from ezra and nehemiah last episode we got through two whole verses holy moly and i still felt like we were having to fly through and uh trust me we'll move at a a much a much quicker a much quicker pace but we are going to return back to uh, ezra chapter one and uh look at a a phrase here that is used that will come up um, a number of times in our study, and is actually a fairly, I don't want to say common phrase, but fairly common phrase in the, in the Old Testament. And again, this is uh, the first five verses I said in the last episode, the first five verses really set the tone for this entire story. And once we get kind of into the more of the narrative, things move a, a, a lot quicker. But you have to see, I think, Two things: you have to see the structure of the book, the organization of the book, and we talked at length um, about that in the last episode, versus the, at the very beginning and the end of last episode. Uh, and you have to see here up front the way in which the authors, the author is bringing us into a much larger story, particularly drawing on by drawing on the prophets, particularly by bringing. Us into the narrative, the dream of the prophets, uh, is, is what I have it titled in, in the notes. That for centuries the prophets had dreamed about the time when God would uh, be Israel's king, that they would be faithful to the covenant, that he would dwell with them, that he would bless them, and that, that through that all the nations would come to Jerusalem and worship in the temple. And the beginning of Ezra and Nehemiah brings us into that narrative, and we have to see that, or we lose, or we lose a a a lot of the force of the book. We lose a lot of the theological weight of the book, um, both in the incredible things that God is doing in their midst, that He is truly moving, and also when we get to the end. When they fail, the disappointment doesn't hit us in the same way if we don't have the weight of the prophets pushing us the whole way through the story. So we have to see those two things working together. So let's let's jump into into the text. So Ezra one, verse three. Um, this is the word uh, that came, uh, or this is the the story of of. Uh, That begins in the the first year of King Cyrus' reign, so that the word that the Lord gave to the prophet Jeremiah uh, would be fulfilled. And then he continues on here in verse 3. And so, to fulfill that word, here's really kind of the beginning of our story, uh, narratively. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And then the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin the priest and the Levites and with all those spirits that God had moved and they arose to go up and to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem now remember this first section of Ezra 1 through Nehemiah 7 is all about rebuilding and the first subsection is Ezra 1 through Ezra 6 and that's talking about the rebuilding of the temple so that's that's where we're focused uh, our focus is going to begin to turn here even with that little phrase to to go up and build the house of the Lord that's obviously a reference to the temple but notice here uh, in verse 3 uh there is a phrase that's repeated twice and here is Bible reading skill 101 and that is when words are repeated um, that is the the primary way that the author is trying to clue you in on something, repetition is the primary tool that the biblical authors use to craft their narrative. Uh, both in, I should say, really both in narrative and in in biblical poetry as well, uh, repetition is the primary tool in the hand of the author, and they use it in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes it's uh, by simply quoting right and they'll just be straight quotations sometimes it's by the repetition of a single word sometimes it's by the repetition of a phrase uh, here we get the repetition of a phrase with a minor alteration but it's the repetition of a small phrase sometimes it's the repetition of a phrase and there is a part that is purposefully changed and that change is actually what the author is trying to bring us into and so they they repeat and then change something so that we notice the change uh in it they'll do it through the repeating of kind of motifs and stories and imagery we'll get into that here actually just in a minute uh about the 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 exodus and so there's all kinds of ways that the the biblical authors do this but uh if i could give everybody a skill to practice it would be uh Pay attention for words, phrases, images that are repeated. Um, it is the primary thing that the biblical authors use to craft their story or their poems or their their uh, messages. I guess you could say. So here in verse three, we get one of those. We get the this idea of God stirring up. So he stirs up the spirit of Cyrus and uh, all those. Uh, people, the people of Israel, who God had stirred up their spirits. So twice in the opening section we're told that the Lord stirred up the people, uh, both Cyrus and the, the people of, of Israel. And so the the idea here is, uh, at, on the surface is very, very clear. This is God's doing, right? This is not Cyrus's idea. This is not uh, just the people who uh, had the best idea. This is... God's spirit moving in the earth on people high and low, important and peasant, rich and poor, you know, the powerful and the slave. God is moving on them all to bring about His word that He spoke by His his prophets. And I think we just have to pause there here and reflect for just a second and say that the Lord, is at work in all kinds of ways in all kinds of places most of which we can't even imagine or see I mean it, the, the narrative tells us that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus did Cyrus know that it was God stirring him up no did these people think that it was God's spirit stirring them up to move uh, probably not I mean who knows but probably they probably just wanted to go back home and Cyrus probably, you know, he's just trying to make a, a political move to help these, people, help these people out so that they will obey him and not hate him and try and overthrow him. And yet underneath all of that, it's God's Spirit that is moving. And we tend to overestimate how good of judges we are of being able to tell where God's Spirit is moving and where it's not moving. We think we, we have that figured out pretty well, I think, most of the time. You know, we have the signs, uh, especially if you are in a kind of a charismatic circle, like the ones that I grow up, grew up in and am still in. One of the chief sins, I think, that we commit is that we think we can recognize when God's Spirit is moving, and it's stories like this that always remind me that God's Spirit is working in mysterious ways in mysterious places and in mysterious people that we could never dare dream or imagine. And so but but that phrase let's let's return to the text here now. That phrase stir up the spirit is again not just a whim. That's not just a thing that you know, the author of Ezra Nehemiah came up with. No, that's actually a a, a hyperlink back to the prophets. Now, here's The other kind of—and it's really connected to the idea of repetition—the other major tool in the hands of of biblical authors is uh, this idea of hyperlinking. So, for example, uh, in the description below of this episode, you will see two hyperlinks, and those hyperlinks will take you somewhere else that is related to what we're talking about here. This is how Wikipedia works, right? You're reading an article on wikipedia and then there's the blue underlined words and you're you can click on that and it will take you to another place but that place started in your your first location and these two places are related and so they mutually explain or benefit each other so you you click on the hyperlink and you go to this new article and you read about that person and it helps you understand the article that you were previously reading and the one that you were previously reading because you were previously reading it, helps you understand about the person that you now clicked on to go read. They reinforce each other, right? You have to read them both ways. And so the one of the things that the biblical authors will do in how they use their repetition uh, is they are hyperlinking all over the place. They are hyperlinking back in, uh, to other stories, to other prophets, to other narratives, Typically, they're going back to the major stories in Scripture. So the stories of of uh, Genesis and the Exodus, and you'll get um, some hyperlinking to you know the time of David. Uh, but they're they're all hyperlinking back, and it's kind of this big network. Of links, it's kind of honestly like Wikipedia. It's this big network of links that, as you start clicking around and moving around, they all start mutually explaining each other, and so you you can click on one, you know, click whatever you can. You can read one, and it takes you it takes you back into the prophets, and you realize there that that's actually back all the way in Genesis, and then you reread Genesis, this portion of Genesis, and you move all the way forward. So let me give you just a brief example, and then we'll we'll look at these. Uh, in the beginning, in the garden, there was a tree, yeah, a tree of life. And there was the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right, that Eve took of and Adam took of and, and ate. Well, Psalm 1, uh, Psalm 1 opens as a meditation of those who are good and evil and the difference of them, and those that are righteous are the ones that meditate on God's Word, and they will be like a tree that's planted by the streams of living water, which the, the tree in the garden was, and they'll, bring, uh, they'll bear fruit uh, all year round. Their leaf will never wither. They'll bring healing, all this kind of stuff. You fast forward all the way to the end of Revelation, and in the New Jerusalem, we also see a, a tree with the same description, by a river, leaves for the healing of the nations, all this kind of stuff. These are hyperlinks. And so you can go and you can read Psalm 1 and realize, oh, this is a kind of commentary on Genesis 3. And then I can go and read Genesis 3 and realize, well, this isn't just a historical story about a guy and his wife who ate a piece of fruit. This is talking about those who will give themselves to God's ways, God's ways, and meditate on His Word and be faithful to His law—that's what this is. This is about, right? So they're both stories are are holding each other up and explaining each other and and clarifying each other, so that we can read it read it both ways. So, in hopefully that was a, a clear enough example. But so here, this this phrase, the Spirit is stirring up, is used all over in Jeremiah and uh, Isaiah, and so I won't go through them all here. You you can see them on the notes, but this is a way, again, that the author is cluing us into uh, what is happening, that this is the work of God, the work that He's promised by the prophets, and one of these that I, I will actually just read one is actually from Isaiah 45 talking about Cyrus, and the Lord says that I will stir up Cyrus in my righteousness, and I will make his way straight, and he will rebuild my cities and set my exiles free. And so when the author says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, that is is just a hyperlink back to Isaiah, but it's not just back to Isaiah 45.13, what I just read. It's back to that whole network of words that the prophet spoke, both about Cyrus and about everything that would be, that would be going, going on. And so when we put it all together, the opening lines of Ezra and Nehemiah tell us that the return of these exiles was God's acting in their midst in order to fulfill the word of the prophets, uh, to not only bring them back into the land— but to bring God's kingdom on the earth so that all of the nations would come to Jerusalem and worship Yahweh and hear his word. This is where, and I, this is we talked extensively about this in the last episode, but this is where the author is intentionally leading us with all of these repeated words, these uh, quotations, these hyperlinks, however you want to put them, and they're all kind of three related. And as we move through the story, we're going to hear and see that the characters in this story, that this is what they are understanding as happening. They, they, to some degree, understand and believe this is what's happening in our day and in our moment. And to some degree, they're right. And this is one of the mysteries here. They did come back. That was one of the words. They did rebuild the temple. That was one of the words. Right? They, the Lord did have mercy on them. That was one of the words. They did make a covenant with him. That was one of the words. But then we get to Jesus and he makes a new covenant and he becomes the new temple and then builds the temple in his church. And he is the branch of the Lord. And he's the one that not only stirs the Spirit, he's the giver of the Spirit. He is the one who releases his Spirit and pours out his Spirit, right? So there's... There's two narratives going on here at the same time and and we need to see the the multi-layeredness of the story in order to I think read it properly. There is a way to read this as just history. And this is this is why it's unfortunate when we think about certain books as just history. Because yes, there is a historical portion to what is being written. like this, you know, these things, In Ezra Nehemiah really happened. But the authors are not just writing pieces of history textbooks here. They're theological works. They're they're anointed by the Spirit to say something to a people about what God has done, is doing, and will do in the future. And those when we have to read on both of those tracks, we have to hear the music on both of those registers at the same time when we're reading scripture. And if we do one without the other, that's where I think you can you can, you know, either strip the the scriptures down to its bare studs and just call it kind of history and whatever, or you can kind of turn it into this kind of fantasy land thing that doesn't have the concreteness that it should. Now these are real things that happen in real places to real people by God's Spirit. But there's two stories, there's two narratives going on at all times, and we need to see it and we need to read it that way um, in order for us to, to really properly understand it. So I kind of briefly mentioned this already, but all of these hyperlinks are tied into another story, and that is the story of the Exodus. And what... I think the author of Ezra Nehemiah is doing is he is by referencing Cyrus and stirring up the spirit and Jeremiah and the words of the prophets and saying this is that which is fulfilling those words. He's pulling on this whole tradition that says that God will bring back his people from captivity and that will be a kind of new exodus and we're going to see that played out in a whole bunch of different ways. So I, I want to I look at just a couple here um, that that go in the book of, of Ezra and um, Nehemiah in just this opening section. But in the notes, I also have a whole section of quotations from Isaiah, and how uh, the quotations that we've been looking at of Isaiah, how they're also tied into... This idea of kind of a new a new exodus, right? So, but let's look at um, it's like in Exodus or in Ezra one, verse six. It talks about the articles of gold and silver were given by neighbors, right? Uh, to uh, or were given and uh, uh, for them to to take back. And in the Exodus story, in, in Exodus three. And eleven, and also in Exodus twelve, we see that same phrase: the articles of gold and silver. They were given by uh, by the neighbors of uh, uh, the Egyptian neighbors to to take out. So in both stories, we have Israel going out of foreign occupation, out of foreign captivity, and they're bringing articles of gold and silver that were given to them by that land. Right. So as they're as they're going out, uh, another one in Ezra one verse 11, the phrase, uh, to be brought up out of Babylon to Jerusalem, is the same kind of literary formula that gets used in the book of Exodus uh, repeatedly when when the the author will say something like, the people, uh, this is, I have a quotation here of Exodus 33, this is God speaking, the people who I brought up out of the land of Egypt to this land. Right? So you have this kind of uh, repeated phrase of the people that get brought up out of the Babylon, the people that get brought up out of out of Egypt. Um, in Ezra 2, uh, we also have a free will offering that's given, and that's also done in Exodus, uh, in Exodus 25 and in Exodus 35. Uh, in Ezra chapter 6, verses 19 through 22, we've both uh, or we have the, the story of, of, of the rebuilding of the temple climaxing in Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that is the same as the Exodus story. Obviously, Passover is when the angel of, of death or the, the destroyer, as the book of Exodus calls them, when the destroyer passes over, right? So we have kind of the same climactic uh, moment. And there's more through the book of, of uh, Ezra, into further sections that that we'll get to as we as we get there but so I think what the the author is meaning for us to do is to read this story with the book of Exodus mapped on top of it. So again with each wave of returnees and there was three we see kind of a re- recapitulation of Israel's flight from Egypt. When they celebrate Passover, unleavened bread, and booths, we see them reenacting the celebrations of Exodus. All those are laid out in Exodus. The rebuilding of the temple mirrors the building of the tabernacle. Just like Moses uh, was given the law and he read it in the hearing of the nation, so Ezra, we'll see this later, will come and read the book of Moses and renew the covenant of Moses. And he even stands on a high place like Moses did on the mountain. Throughout the story, we see Israel come against the same uh, adversaries as Moses' generation. So as, as we see some of the, the antagonists, some of the bad guys uh, brought into the story, they're from the same people groups that opposed the Exodus generation when they came out into the wilderness. And just like the Exodus generation traveled through that wilderness into the Promised Land, so this generation resettles in their own cities the, uh, of the land that was promised to their fathers. So the people actually take censuses and, and map out their family lineage and then settle back into those cities. So all of this informs us, I think, how we're supposed to read Ezra and Nehemiah and place it in the larger narrative. Remember, this is one puzzle piece that's connected to a much larger puzzle. And one of the edges here of what I'm trying to argue and show is that this has a direct connection to the story of Exodus. Now, the story of Exodus is the, the second book in, I mean, it really is Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all of kind of those together. Um, but, and obviously then even at the very beginning of Joshua, but that that story and this story, although they're on opposite ends of the Old Testament, they share an edge, they share a theological edge, they share a literary edge, they share a narrative edge in these puzzle pieces. They're these these puzzle pieces are intentionally meant to be touching, to be sharing a border and for us to see them in, as that way. And so it but how many of us read Ezra Nehemiah, have read Ezra Nehemiah before and been like, hey, you know what this I think I should read Exodus. Or when was the last time you read Exodus and thought Ezra and Nehemiah? Most of us probably have not, and I think that's just because we have not, we have not gotten the reps or been taught to read slowly, to pay attention to certain details, to understand things like repetition and hyperlinks and things like that. But once you do, it becomes pretty clear that that's exactly exactly what's going on. So by framing this story as a, a kind of second exodus, and again, that's not just Ezra and Nehemiah language, that's filled in the prophets, especially the prophet Isaiah, uh, but it's filled in the prophets. Uh, this connects us back to the time of Moses when God would forgive the sins of Israel. Uh, or connects us back to the time of Moses, excuse me, and forward to what the prophets dreamt about. When God would forgive the sins of Israel, the messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom on the earth from Jerusalem. And at that time, the prophet said, the nations would flow to the temple in Jerusalem and hear the word of the Lord. So imagine this. Here's the people. They are coming back to rebuild the temple. And in their mind is this. We're going to rebuild this. And the nations are going to flock to it. The nations are going to be saved. God is going to send His Messiah, the root of David, the branch of the Lord, the branch of righteousness, the one that was promised by the prophets. This is it in the word. This is it in the time. In the uh, uh, this is the time that the word of the Lord is going to be fulfilled. It's happening in our day, in our time. We're going to see it. And when we lay stone upon stone and timber upon timber on that temple, it is unto the nations coming and worshiping Yahweh. This is the expectation in their heart. This is the expectation that they have for what is going on. And as readers, as importantly— this is what we're meant to feel as well in this opening chapter. We're meant to feel that same weight of expectation, that we're meant to sense that same excitement that they did. And so that brings us into Ezra 2. Now, it may be tempting to skip over Ezra 2 because it's 70 verses of a genealogy, okay? Okay which is not exciting reading probably to anyone, but let me make a quick case. A quick case. Okay, this list, along with Nehemiah 7, they set a form of brackets for this whole section. So remember, the first major section of this book is Ezra 1 and Nehemiah 7. Well, here we are at the very beginning in Ezra 2, and we have this long genealogy. We have almost an idea. Identical matching genealogy in Nehemiah 7. So they form kind of brackets that bracket this section in. This is how one of the, the literary tools that biblical authors will use to mark off sections is they'll have something at the beginning and a matching thing at the end. So in, in this case, it's a genealogy, a very lengthy genealogy that's really hard to miss. I mean, you get to Nehemiah 7 and you're like, wait, have I have I read this list before? where is this from oh yeah i read it almost the exact same list in ezra 2 right there's only a couple of slight differences and so but what's the point of this list most of these people that we don't know most of these families we don't know um what in the world are we kind of like to make of this right well we just got done talking about how One of the the, the purposes of these hyperlinks is to connect the story backwards, you know, what's happening in their time, backwards to what the prophets have spoken and forward to the fulfillment of what the prophets spoke. This genealogy is doing the same thing. Its primary purpose is to, to give the reader a sense of connection between these people And Israel's past, right? So, in this in this case here in Ezra two, they're taking essentially a a census of you have to prove your lineage so that you can be in the people, right? Who could be in and who could who could not? And then they also divvy up, okay, who's uh, priests and Levites and singers and gatekeepers and temple servants and so on and so forth. And then when they actually you know, get all of that figured out in the final verse, this is where they settle, uh, quote, in their own towns, right? Uh, echoing a verse of when Joshua, when they divvied up the land and then everyone went and settled in their towns. All of these are ways that the author is trying to get us to see that these people are connected to the past story. They're connected to that Exodus story, to coming into the promised land, right? So just like Joshua brought them into the promised land, now uh, these people, and there's even one of the leaders, his name is Joshua, they're brought in, back into the promised land and they settle, resettle in that land. The prophets uh, belonging to the community, working in the temple, having certain liturgical uh um, duties and jobs and roles—all of these are connection points to bring us, uh, to bring us as readers, into seeing that that this is all one narrative and one and one story. And there's actually a ton of lists in Ezra. It's one of the Ezra Nehemiah. It's one of the unique things about this book. Um, on page, uh, let's see, on page 25 of the notes, I have let's see, two, four, six, eight, like ten different lists. Um, Put on in a table there of of uh, things of people and things and repeated lists and signers of pledges and all that kind of stuff and it's one of the unique literary um, marks of Ezra Nehemiah is all of the lists and again we want to skip over those but they're there for a reason and I think the main purpose here in for this one and for for. the one also in Nehemiah seven is to connect uh, to connect these people to to the past. So that that brings us to Ezra three. See, I told you we we're going to move faster here. Um, so after telling a kind of a uh, straightforward story of chapters one and two, the the author takes the reader on kind of a chaotic chronological ride for the remainder of of this section. Um, the point in reading, I remember I have this very vivid memory of, in college of just laboring over this section, trying to put it back together chronologically and just being so confused as to what was going on. Because I did not have the category at that point that it doesn't have to be in chronological order. Nothing. There's no. But we're so used to that. That's the only way that we tell or write stories is in chronological order, and because we think of this book as history, not as prophetic, we expect it to be in chronological order. And so then, when things aren't, we just get so confused. I just have this vivid memory of sitting in my on in my apartment on my bed, trying to figure out what in the world is going on because this is jumping all over the place. And now I just just realized they didn't play by those rules. There's no rule in biblical authorship that says you need to keep things in chronological order because they're trying to make theological points more than anything, or thematic points would be another way that you could could say it, okay? So uh, it's a little bit chaotic, so if you try and redo the chronology, you'll probably be uh, frustrated. But they are clearly marked, so you can see what's going on. So... When they come back, the returnees, when they come back, the first thing that they rebuild is the temple and its altar in order to reestablish worship, okay? And again, this you read this in light of Jeremiah 25, 29, the Book of Consolation, which, remember, is Jeremiah 30 through 33, passages like Isaiah 2, where the nations, 2 and 11, chapter 2 and chapter 11, where the nations are coming up to the temple to worship, um... And so they come back and the first order of business is rebuild the temple, right? Uh, to rebuild the the worship of the people. And so the story of the altar, um, which is the first six verses, there's the story of the altar, then the story of the temple itself, right? In chapter three, verse seven through four, five. And this section is marked off by a repeated phrase, the people of the land. So we get, again, at the beginning and at the end, we get kind of people of the land as a, a section. And again, that phrase, people of the land, echoes uh, the that idea of the nations flowing into Jerusalem, right? That that's that's already what's being foreshadowed here. So, in the narrative, once the altar is done and they begin to um, sacrifice and worship day and night, just as the Torah in instructed, they they keep the feast of booths, which was celebrated, uh, which celebrated Israel's journey out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. So again, they come back they. Rebuild the temple or just the altar here and the foundation, and they sell the first thing they do is they celebrate the feast of booths uh bringing in the story of of exodus and and the the important thing to realize I think here is that the liturgical calendar is also a way of telling the story and bringing the old story into the present. This is why, I mean, I I think I've, over the last few years, have fallen in love with the Church calendar. And we, for the first time this year, we observed, my family observed Advent. We did something every night with the kids as a family, and we walked through the story, and we did all these different things. And uh, one of the most powerful services I've ever been to in my entire life uh, was an Ash Wednesday service when we lived in Colorado Springs. And uh, it was this, the liturgical element of living out this thing that year after year that was just—I um, mean, it was, it was powerful. It's the only really way to describe it. Is year after year you're reenacting uh, this thing that has happened to bring it into your present moment and to continue to relive it and feel it and contemplate it and come under the weight of it and that's what the the feasts in the Old Testament were really all about and it's the same thing that we do today with the uh, the liturgical calendar with the the church the church calendar. Now, so they they rebuild the altar they celebrate the the feast. and then they they get started on um, the foundation of the actual temple itself. It says they do this according to to David. Again, that would be a hyperlink back that you could go look at. But despite all of these great accomplishments here we run into our first our first kind of sign of trouble, if you want to put it that way and we get this anticlimax right so they're shouting with joy they're singing there's a great shout and then we get to this we get to this point in the story let me just pull it up here in 3 verse 12 it says but many of the priests and the levites and the heads of the fathers houses the old men Who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house was laid. And though many shouted for joy, so there's a contrast there. There's, again, so we have shouting with a loud voice in in weeping, and we have a loud voice in joy. So there's this repeated phrase, but it's different in order to draw the contrast. So the people could not distinguish the sound of joy uh, a joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. And see, here we get our first sign of trouble. Because if you're just tracking so far, dream of the prophets, word of Isaiah, word of Jeremiah, new Exodus, the people in, in chapter 2 have been formed. We've identified the, the Levites and the priests and the singers. Now we've come and we've We've reestablished the altar, and we're celebrating booths, as as just as they came out of the wilderness into the promised land. So now we've come out of the wilderness of exile, and we're come back into the promised land, and we're settling in our houses. And they begin to lay the temple, so that all of the nations can come and they can hear the word of the Lord, and the Messiah will come and set up God's kingdom in in, in Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem, and it will reign over all the earth. And then people start weeping, and they start weeping tears of sorrow and disappointment, and it's just kind of this letdown in the narrative. honestly, if you're, if we're honest, you're just like, wait, wait, I this was supposed to be it. I thought this was supposed to be the hour and the day and God stirring the spirit of his people why the sorrow if this is the fulfillment of the prophetic word then shouldn't this be just a joyous occasion and what we're going to see and i have this mapped out on a table in on page 27 of the notes is that all three of these rebuilding sections so remember Ezra 1 through 6 is rebuilding of the temple 7 through 10 is the law and Nehemiah 1 through 7 is the city walls. Each of those three sections follows the same kind of structure in the story. They all begin with a royal decree. Then it moves into the opposition that they, they come against. Then uh, that opposition is overcome. And then there's a climax-anticlimax. Right, so here in this story is Cyrus commissions Zerubbabel. Then again, because the chronology is off in this section, it's been moved around, the verses move around here. It's not in perfect order, but that's just because the chronology has been moved around. So Cyrus commissions Zerubbabel, that's the royal decree. Then opposition comes, the people of the land, they hired counselors against them. That's Ezra 4. Then Ezra 5 and 6, uh, the prophets come and the rebuilding continues, right? So they overcome that. But then we get this this story of anticlimax, of weeping at the temple dedication. So it, the whole temple project is begins with a note of joy mixed with sorrow. It's not just straight joy. And so even everything that comes after that chronologically has this kind of sour note to it of, sorrowfulness and weeping throughout. And we're going to see that same structure of royal decree, opposition, overcoming, and then anticlimax. That that same kind of basic four-part structure actually flows through uh, all of these three kind of rebuilding sections. And then we're going to see at the very end, and I've already kind of spoiled it a little bit, but that's okay, is at the very end of the book, we're going to get a major anticlimax where all three of the major sections of the rebuilding of the renewal of the covenant um in in every way are going to of the temple law and the the covenant they're going to all uh have a kind of same anticlimactic moment and so the the whole book ends on an anticlimax and so i think i think we'll stop there and so takeaways from this episode is, again, it's the continuing to push the story forward of re- using repeated words and hyperlinks and images and quotations, and all kinds of different ways to draw us into the story. But we've now we've come into our first kind of moment of crisis and realizing that wait, maybe not all is as we thought that it was. Maybe, Maybe this isn't actually the moment. Maybe this is a moment. God's Spirit is moving. God's Spirit is doing something that is real, that really matters. But maybe there's more yet to come, far more than we can ever dream or imagine. And, and there's a way to read that. And maybe anticlimax is a little bit misleading in one way. I mean, in, in some way that it's true, because there's a this letdown in the narrative. But in another way, it's not true. It, it, it's kind of the opposite is happening because the the actual climax that this leads to is Jesus. So it's like a, it's almost like a we're experiencing a little bit of a false summit. If you've ever climbed a mountain, um, you you get these things called false summits where because of the angle of the slope of the hill. You go up and you think that you see the summit. And so you're like, yes, this is it. I see it. I see the end. And then you get up right at the top of it and you realize that there's more hill still to climb. There's still, still, still more mountain to climb. You just couldn't see it uh, because of the angle that you were at. I remember when we lived in Colorado, we did a, a hike and I, first first time I ever experienced a false summit. And it was like the most defeating thing ever. Um but then you get to the top and it act, that false summit actually adds to the thrill and the exhilaration of what comes at the end. And so there is this sense of anticlimactic, a false summit here, and we're going to get more of them, as I just said. Uh, but we know that the true summit is coming, Jesus, who's, who's going to fulfill all of these words and actually bring this story to its conclusion. And so let's let's stop there. When we come back for the next episode, we're going to finish this first section. So we'll do Ezra 4, 5, and 6 in the next episode. And uh, again, uh, if you have not checked out the substack, you can do that through the link in the description below. Would love for you to join join me on there as well. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, my email is also down below, as well as the notes that I've been referencing throughout this and all the other episodes so thank you so much and we'll see you on the other side